and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. Around 1900, John Pittman of Rocky Harbor disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Here is Ella Manuel's version of Murder at Sea, or was it? I will never hear a tale that has haunted me more than the one Stephen told me that night as we fished the placid water and watched the sun set over the bay. Now mind you, don't go round telling this for a good long spell, Stephen warned. Some of the people I'm telling you about are still alive, and they mightn't like it if you went airing this around to everybody like you do with your yarns. Well, it's now a good long spell since that day, so I'm going to tell it. It's about a murder, Stephen began, about my uncle who had disappeared. he just vanished right off the face of the world, and we never found the rights of it, though it happened almost fifty years ago. As Stephen told it, the story began with an American banker loading salt herring in the Bay of Islands late in the fall. She delayed leaving just a day too long and was caught in the ice just outside the bay. Being unfamiliar with the coast and quite without experience of early winter ice, the crew feared what they didn't know. They attempted to free themselves, but with windless days and nights and falling temperatures, the ship was only trapped tighter. Driven with ice steadily north along the forbidding harborless coast, they finally came in sight of Trout River, hardly a dent in the coastline, but showing a few houses. The men turned their backs on the ship, walked ashore over the ice, and went home, out of this story. Now, said Stephen, here was a sound vessel loaded with good salt herring, standing out there alone and drifting north, and here were the buys on shore with nothing to do but watch her. Fishing was done for the season, and t'was too early for logging. Nobody in Trout River paid much heed, tis true, but when the ship drifted up across Bombay and they could see her from Woody Point, somebody said, Come on, let's go out aboard of her. Well, were they just going for the hell of it, I asked? Not exactly. I think they must have been thinking of salvage. They figured if they stopped to figure at all, that they could get their boats within half a mile of the ship and then walk across the ice to her. They would stay on board till she was free and then bring her back. Anyhow, about a half dozen men started out. They put in for a few hours at Rocky Harbor, where they met up with me uncle, a big red-headed feller he was and always ready for a bit of fun despite his terrible temper. They persuaded him to go along to sort of liven up the party. Anyhow, off they went. For about a week we could still see the ship way out, still stuck in the ice and then the wind hauled round and drifted her out of sight. More than a month went by, and we didn't hear a thing about her. I can mind me father talking about it. I was only five or six then. He said there was no use worrying because we couldn't get out to her, not rightly knowing where she was. Well, finally, Stephen went on, she drifted out toward the shore up there by Cow Head, where the land leans to the westward. And pretty soon she was off the arches, just by Parsons Pond, and then some fellers came down to Bombay by dog team and told us they'd seen the vessel. So we decided to go and get my uncle to bring him home. They took me with them, so I'm now telling you what I saw and done. We harnessed the dogs and drove up the old coastal track till we came to Parsons Pond. We got the loan of a dory 
but we had a bit of trouble getting right up to the ship because of the drift ice and slob and patches of open water. When we got to the vessel, she looked empty. I mind I had a cold, naughty feeling in the middle of my stomach, and I can see my father's face now, all screwed up and anxious. Anyhow, as soon as we got to the boat, we saw a man coming up out of the forecastle. His head was bandaged up so as we could hardly see his face. He was a Bombay man, never mind his name. He said he was acting cook, and he looked over the side, down on us with a grey, sick-looking face and shifty eyes. And we asked him hearty-like, "'Well, boy, how you getting on, and, and where's our man?' The cook stared, and then he said, "'Ain't you seen him yet? He left here last Friday to walk ashore. Said he was anxious to get home and see how you were all getting along.' Well, when me father had digested that information, we wondered where on earth me uncle had got to. Was he lost? Had he started to walk along the bleak coast alone and been caught in a blizzard? Perhaps he had broken his leg and was at this moment cold, hungry, and suffering, off in the bush by himself. So we went right back to Parsons Pond, Stephen continued, and the people there told us he couldn't have walked ashore on Friday because there was open water between the vessel and the shore and he couldn't have come ashore in a boat, else someone would have seen him, which nobody did. So all we knew was that he wasn't lost in the woods. And then my father said, I wonder what happened to the cook's head. Nobody said anything to that, but we were all thinking of my uncle's awful temper. Anyhow, my father got three men from the village. He left me ashore this time and rowed out to the ship again. When they got there, they could see all the crew on the move, opening hatches, clearing the decks, and tidying up the gear. They were getting ready to bring the vessel back to port, now that the ice was breaking up. They were a quiet lot, father said, never saying a word when they went on board. Now the crew offered no resistance and no hospitality, which was strange for people who were usually friendly. The visitors asked the normal questions. What kind of a time did they have? Was it cold on the vessel? Did they have plenty of food? And talking thus, they worked their way slowly from deck to forecastle, eyes everywhere. They were looking for something, but they didn't know what, just that they would recognize a sign when they saw one. Now the forecastle was empty when Stephen's father, ahead of the others, climbed down the ladder into the crew's quarters. He returned, in his hand a torn bit of sail, in the middle of which was a deep stain of blood, stiff and dry now, but unmistakably blood. I found it under a bunk, he whispered to his friend, stuffed in tight against the plank. It looked strange, so I pulled it out. Look! And he showed the deep stain. Well, I'll hold them here while you go and have another look. And he kept the crew on deck, telling them a long, drawn-out story of what occurred at a dance in Woody Point when the magistrate got roaring drunk. This served to keep the crew together for ten minutes, giving Stephen's father time to investigate and to discover, carefully stowed under a bunk, a belaying pin which was also blood-stained. A Parsons pawn man who had been poking around on his own muttered, Queer ting. They got ne'er hedge anchor nor jib sail. An explanation was then demanded. The crew to a man related that the cook and the redhead had been at daggers drawn from the beginning of the voyage. One night they got into a proper row, and the cook called Red a nasty name and got a wallop on the head with a blaying pin for his pains. Oh, it was a bad knock, enough to make him bleed like a stuck pig. In fact, he had a huge gash in his head under the bandage. The blood on the piece of sail was due to the cook's dripping all over it as he waited to be bandaged. Cook looked such a ghastly sight 
that Red took fright and made off in the dory for shore. And of course, as it was night, the Parsons Pond people couldn't see him row ashore. But where was the little anchor? Well, they'd lost it one night in a gale. Well, how did it happen that the rope attaching it was cut? Well, that's just the way it looked. It broke off clean. So what happened to the jib? Well, they didn't know. Maybe the Americans had lost it. Anyhow, it wasn't there when they came aboard the ship. Stephen's father and his friends left the vessel and went ashore. They organized search parties that scoured every foot of the shore and inland between Parsons Pond and Rocky Harbor. Never did they see sign of Red nor anyone else. They waited. He didn't turn up. Every living soul along that coast kept a sharp lookout for months. The devil-may-care red-headed fisherman who took life so easy and laughed so much, despite his villainous temper, was never seen again. Stephen's father bided his time. The ship was brought back to Woody Point. The Americans came to claim her and paid good salvage money. And then Stephen's father struck. Gathering a few friends for moral support, he went to the magistrate and demanded the crew's arrest for murder. The magistrate is reported to have said, You haven't got a body, so how do you know it's murder? And that was the end of it until several years later. Then a rumor spread after one of the ship's crew fell ill. Before he died, he is said to have confessed to helping kill the redhead after a tremendous row. They didn't mean to kill him, only to give him a good fright, but when they found he was dead, they panicked. So they sewed him in the sail, weighted him with the kedge anchor, and threw him overboard. Mind you, said Stephen, "'twas only a rumor, but even to this day one old man will whisper, murder, and another will shrug his shoulder and say, poor fellow must have lost his way. While Steve was yarning, the sun had set and a little breeze blew up to ruffle the glassy surface of the bay. The moon stood on top of gross morn, then leaped off into the sky. The little gasoline engines that generated electricity for the big houses began to chug, and lights came on as tiny pinpoints along the shore. We piled our catch in a heap, shipped our oars, and rowed home for a glass of beer before the cafe shut. Well, what do you think, Steve? I asked. Oh, I think they done away with him. But tis a long time ago, and there's no good holding against them people. We got to live with them, so we might as well forget about the past. Still, I'd like to know for sure. And so would I. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for the story of a man who barely survived a shipwreck off the northern tip of Newfoundland.